kind of a, a lonely little passage back in Jeremiah chapter 26 because there are very few occasions in the Bible in the Old Testament where reference is made to other characters historically sometimes we're con- contemporary with them you know like Ezekiel does and, and here Jeremiah makes reference to Micah of Morasheth and because his his place is named with his name we know this is the same individual that wrote the book of Micah now chapter 26 in Jeremiah is a very fascinating chapter when you understand the whole flow of what's going on in Jeremiah but Jeremiah is suffering persecution for giving out the truth of God's Word. And, of course, this is right in the middle of his book. His book's 52 chapters. But in verse 16, So the princes and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man, speaking of Jeremiah now, This man does not deserve, I mean, does not deserve to die for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. They were, they had arrested him and they wanted to put him to death because of what he was preaching about the judgment that was coming upon Jerusalem. They didn't want that message. And so they were going to put him to death. So these stand up and say, This man doesn't deserve to die, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Then certain of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly, saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah. Now, Jeremiah's writing this, and when Jeremiah lived, it's roughly a hundred years later, a century later after Micah's time and his prophesying. So they still remembered, as the older ones did, the elders did. They said, yeah, we remember Micah of Moresheth. He prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spoke to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion, which is Jerusalem, shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Sound like a politically correct message? Sound like a message that God's people want to hear? Be like someone to get up and say, the Lord is going to bring judgment on this assembly. And He's going to destroy the whole testimony and remove it completely, take away the lampstand. Right? Very dramatic, very clear. And, and look what they say in verse 19. What Micah prophesied did not happen in his lifetime. Why? Because he prophesied it, and the people repented. Hezekiah, of course, led in that repentance. We're told about that in Isaiah 36 to 39. And Jerusalem was spared. Jerusalem was the only city in the southern kingdom that was spared. The rest of them were destroyed and made plows of heaps of rubble, including Micah's home city and, and the major city near him, Lachish. But Jerusalem was spared. You remember? The Assyrian army had encircled them, were getting ready to destroy them. And then an angel of the Lord went out and slew 185,000 of them in one night. One angel. Just like that. See, the Lord relented from what He said He would bring because when He warned the people, they listened. And that's what he says in verse 19. Did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Judah ever put him to death? 
Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor? And the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them. But we are doing a great evil against ourselves. Very insightful. So I, I, I appreciate those little historical references to other characters that we read and study about in the Bible, but that gives a tremendous insight into the importance, I think, of this book of Micah because God used this prophet and these prophecies that we're looking at to reverse a judgment on Jerusalem, His city, where the Shekinah glory dwelt in the temple. God was willing to do that because His people were in disobedience to His Word and not yielded to His purposes for them. Beloved, God doesn't change. Amen? I am the Lord, I changeth not, He says. Jesus Christ the same, yesterday, today, and forever. His character doesn't change. And, it, and it's amazing to me, we were talking about this last night, that you know these kind of prophetic books like Micah are often ignored in preaching in the church. I'm not saying they're ignored here. Obviously they're not. We went through the minor prophets a few years ago and here we're back in them. And I'm sure you've been in them in other times too. But in, in many churches of the Lord's people in general, the prophets, especially the minor prophets, are ignored because their messages are hard to digest. They're hard to receive sometimes. But those may be the very messages that we need. And I believe we live in a day where we do need such messages. So coming back to, to Micah, if you want to just, uh, if, if, you're, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. I don't feel comfortable enough with this outline to put it in print yet. That's why I haven't done it in the form of a handout because I'm, I'm still tweaking it. There may be a few adjustments I make. But in general, the form, the, the skeletal outline is there. This is, this is how I would divide up the book. All right, We've already looked at chapter 1. And chapter 1 was a, a judgment oracle or an oracle of, of doom. We, talk, we talked about it. The message of the announcing the Assyrian invasion the invasion of the neo-assyrian empire and that invasion occurred in micah's lifetime so he prophesied it would come hosea had already prophesied ahead of him hosea was a cont contemporary of his but maybe about 15 years ahead of him so hosea had prophesied it to the northern kingdom and it came and samaria was reduced to rubble and so was Lachish and Moresheth Gath and Moresha where his home city and his home people were. We're thinking about what Tim was saying with Yoli. It, it brings it right close to home when it's your own family that you're talking about where all this destruction is occurring. It's, when it's remote from us, you know, a long ways halfway across the world, you know, we, we, can, we empathize with them, but we don't feel the pain really. But when it's happening, when your relatives are up on the top of a mountain because there's, their whole city and village has been wiped out in the flood, that changes the perspective. And that's why I believe God used Micah in this way. Isaiah was in Jerusalem, a little more remote to the scene. Micah was right there where the terrible disaster was happening. 
And so that's what we saw in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, we began to look at that last night. He begins with a woe oracle there in verse 1 of chapter 2. And in the first five verses, he is dealing with the rulers, the leaders who were gathering basically the money to themselves and exploiting the weaker people. The strong were exploiting the weak. Now according to the law and also according to church truth, the strong are to uphold the weak, right? The strong are to help the weak. We are to grow together in the Lord. Ephesians 4, building up one until each joint in in uh, ligament does its part as we contribute to the building of the body, the edifying of the body of itself in love, as Paul tell, teaches us there. It's the same idea. But then beginning in verse 6 of chapter 2, down through verse 11, he exposes another cause of the problem. The, the cause of the problem that that brought the doom that he prophesied in chapter 1, he's explaining that in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Now, and in chapter 2, it was the leaders and their greed and exploiting the weaker people. And they were actually exploiting the righteous people too, as we, we saw last night. And then the, the prophets, the false prophets, were energizing the leaders and, and encouraging them and, and twisting the Word of God to justify what these leaders were doing in exploiting the people. Just like people do today who twist the Scriptures to justify a lifestyle that the Bible disagrees with, right? And so the Lord exposes them, and then in verses 12 and 13 there is a a hope oracle, a, a promise of a deliverer. This is a messianic reference. Uh, that's a wonderful truth and we'll look at that in a little more detail on Sunday morning if that's alright because that'll tie in with what I want to look at in chapter 5 and then in chapter 3 you see and I said here now O heads of Jacob so he is and I said links this oracle back to the previous one he's continuing it but it's separate so chapter 1 the invasion chapter 2 the cause of that Invasion, the judgment God was bringing. And then chapter 3, he continues to reveal the cause and he deals with the rulers and then the false prophets together. The rulers in verses 1 through 4, the false prophets in verses 5 through 7. And then in chapter 3, verse 8 through 12, Micah contrasts the true prophet himself with the false prophets and announces the judgment that we just read about in, uh, in Jeremiah 26. The verses that they read in Jeremiah 26 are right there in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 3. Be look, at, look at this in your Bible. I want you to follow along with me in the Bible. Don't be looking at me. Be looking Because I want you to be seeing where these transitions take place. And then chapter 4 and 5 form the middle part. I told you that I'm suggesting... There's a chiastic structure. I'm not. I'm, I'm still proving it from the text to myself, but it appears like it might be that way. So you have chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, right? Three parts, and then chapter four and five, the peak, the center of the prophecy, which will deal with the the Jerusalem when it's purged finally in the millennial kingdom, 
in the coming of Messiah, both the first and second advent are included, and that's in this section in chapter 4 and 5. And then he comes back in chapter 6 to continuing to expose the cause for why the judgment, the discipline needed to come to his people. In chapter 6, 1 through 8, we see him with this Reeb oracle where he pleads with his people with regard to how he has been so merciful in caring of them and why were they rebelling against him. He said, what have I done to you that you should rebel against me? All I've done to you is, well, I've saved you out of Egypt, he said. I delivered you from bondage. I protected you when Balaam was hired, the false prophet Balaam was hired by the king of Moab to curse you. And I turned his curse into a blessing. In other words, God's saying, I divinely intervened all these places graciously and showed favor to you. Why are you kicking against me? Why are you turning against me, he says to the nation. And it's very revealing because there's a parallel to how he speaks to us too. When we get in a place of disobedience from the Lord, he says to you, I love you. I've demonstrated that love. I died for you on the cross. I regenerated you. I gave you my Holy Spirit. I gave you the understanding of my word. I'm working with you in sanctification and I've promised to glorify you. I've done all these things for you. How come you don't love me back? stirring, isn't it? And the people come back and say, well, with what shall we come to you? In, in almost a sarcastic way, in verse 6 and 7, they say, what, shall I give the firstborn of my body for the sin of my soul? You know, you're asking me to, to, to give an offering. You know, how much do, you, do I have to give you, Lord, to please you? I mean, you can just see the animosity toward God, right? In that statement, that question and how they ask it. And he responds in that great verse 8 that we use as a memory verse. He has shown you already, O man. And notice when he says, O man, he expands it out to not just Israel, to humankind, to everybody, the Gentile, the Goyim, everybody. He says, I've already shown you what I'm seeking. It's in the law. It's in the Mosaic Covenant. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord does require of you. And he gives a tremendous summary of the law. Three things that we can all relate to very easily. To do justly. Now what's the one thing, maybe you, you, if you've followed along with me in some of these messages, you remember. What's the one thing that the Lord has been accusing them of, especially the leaders? Injustice, right? You're doing unjustly toward your people and that is a violation of the law. You're supposed to be just. Not just with the people of Israel but even with the strangers that come to live among you. The Gentiles that remember that come to live Deuteronomy chapter 10. If a stranger, an alien, one who's not of the commonwealth of Israel comes to live among you, you are to deal justly with him. You're not to exploit him either. You're to take care of him and his family. To do justly. Secondly, to love mercy. That's just the opposite of what they were doing. They couldn't wait to find a friend of theirs 
doing something, some violation against them so they could put them in prison and confiscate their property instead of being merciful. Beloved, we are all sinners. We hurt one another. We commit sin every day. And if you don't think you do, well, we need to take, we need to go all the way back to the beginning of the gospel. <laughs> because you have to recognize you're a sinner before you can be saved, right? So that shouldn't be news to any of us who are believers. We recognize that, and, and my, if we're not going to be merciful towards one another, given how merciful God has been with us, you see the anomaly? You see how strange that is to God? God says, I, I've been so merciful with you and put up with all your... And, and then you can't put up with your own weaknesses from your brethren? You know? And then thirdly, to walk humbly with your God. Now there's that word walk again. And we see it used constantly, especially by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, right? Walk according to the Spirit. If you walk according to the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh and so forth. What does it mean? Well, the law of first reference will take us back to Genesis chapter 3, won't it? The first time it's used in the Bible, it was used of Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day. What does the word walk mean? Does it mean just walking down a pathway then? means fellowship, right? It means being in agreement. And so the Lord will say in the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 3, can two walk together unless they be agreed? See, if you're not in agreement, you're not, you know, one's going this way, one's going that way. They're not going to walk together. Our brother Ron Ward, I remember a few years ago we were talking, he said, you know, when he thinks of the holiness of God and the holiness that we as believers are called to, that one definition of holiness, he said, is agreeing with God. I like that. Agreeing with God. Agreeing with what God says about sin. Agreeing with what God says about me. Agreeing with what, what God says about what He wants from me and you and the church and, and all of that. That's what it means to be in fellowship. And of course, Paul gives that great warning in 1 Corinthians 11 when we take the Lord's Supper. We better not eat and drink it if we're not in fellowship with Him and one another. Because you can't say you're in fellowship with the Lord and not be in fellowship with your brethren. Because we're one. Right? He's the head of the body. And you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. He says if you do that as a believer. So it's a serious matter to God. But it's also a great privilege for us to walk with God in this world, in sinful bodies even. The sin nature, hostile against God, always wanting to do contrary to God, according to Galatians 5. If you believe what the Bible says, that's what it says about your nature and mine. It doesn't ever want to please God. It's contrary to what the Holy Spirit wants to do every step of the way, every inch of the way. And that's why so many of our brethren, I think, are falling by the wayside to sins that they don't need to be falling to because they don't realize the gravity of the spiritual battle and they don't realize how wicked their own hearts are. 
Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says, What about our hearts? That, that, that we could, with a little counseling, that we might be able to get them cleaned up a little bit? That there's really a little tiny bit of good, and we just need to fan that flame and make that good grow? No, it's, it's not real complimentary. Deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. In fact, so deceitful and wicked, you can't even get to the depth, the bottom of the wickedness. You can keep going and going and you'll never get to the bottom. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us, when Paul talks about putting on, putting off the old man and putting on the new man, and he says that our flesh is continually corrupting itself. It's in the present tense. And we think that maybe our flesh stopped corrupting itself the moment we were saved. No, your flesh keeps getting worse and worse as we grow and live in this world. Do you realize that? Ask some of our older brethren. That's why the temptations don't go away. And we think, well, maybe those temptations, when I get to be 70, I asked a brother years ago, I said, and he said, no, it, it's worse. It's harder. If I hadn't dealt with it back in my 30s, I'd be losing the battle in my 70s, he said. So for you younger ones, you think, well, I can put that off till later. If you put it off till later, you're going to end up in a ditch somewhere as a, as a failure and a wreck in your Christian testimony. And don't think it can't happen. You and I know people that used to preach, that used to travel, that worked with Stewart's Foundation, that worked with Emmaus, that worked all these different and had wonderful and, and lost it all. Made a total shipwreck. They won't lose their salvation, but they lost the rewards. The suffering of loss is the reward, see? I don't want to lose mine. I'm, I'm sure I've lost enough of them along the way just by making dumb decisions and mistakes that I make along the way. And I don't need to add to that by just by being ridiculously disobedient to the Word of God when I know better. So it's a, it's a fabulous picture of the Christian life, that chapter 6, verse 8. But then in chapter 6, verse 9, he shifts again. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going... And, and for some of us, some of you brethren which, who appreciate the detail, we could work, I could prove to you from the text. Because you you, you're going to ask me to validate it, and you should ask me to validate it from the text where these transitions occur. I'm not taking the time to do that because it would take... You know, an hour probably for each transition to really treat it respectfully and right. So I'm just giving this to you, and you can look at it and compare it in your own reading and study time. But I believe there's a transition occurs in chapter 6, verse 9, and it continues all the way through chapter 7, verse 7. And you notice in chapter 7, verse 1, the, a woe is pronounced again. So this is a second woe oracle, and it corresponds to the woe oracle of chapter 2. And that's where I began to see, that, is there a chiasm going on here? Because there's a parallel in chapter 3 with chapter 6, 1 through 8, and I believe you can prove that. There's a parallel between chapter 2 and 6, 9 to 7, 7. And then in 7, 8, there's a shift again in subject matter, and it continues to verse 20, the end of the book. And it does correspond. There are many statements that are parallel statements that correspond to what he says in chapter 1. So this is the things we look for when the Lord is putting a literary chiasm together, which to me is fascinating. Because that, I mean, somebody had to invent that. And our Lord did. My Father did. 
My heavenly Father did. And I, and I love to look at the wisdom of my Father and just admire it and say, Wow, Father, that's, that's neat how you did that. As well as learning from it. Now the Lord, when He uses chiasm, He does that because He knows how He made our minds. He knows that helps us to remember things. And it also helps us to see where the importance is. And in this chiasm, if I'm accurate, chapter 4 and 5 are right at the peak of it. Right there, right in the center. And who's the one talked about and presented the most in chapter 4 and 5? Our Lord Jesus. So it wouldn't surprise us that the Father is going to glorify His Son in that way. So, brief breakdown of, of the book like, like I told you last night we would do. I want to come back to chapter 3, mention a few things about this section dealing with the false prophets. In, verse, in, in chapter 2, verse 6, the leaders and the false prophets tell Jeremiah, Do not prattle. You say to those who prophesy, so they shall not prophesy to you. In other words, they were telling Micah and the other preachers of righteousness that were preaching the truth, they were saying, don't prophesy. Don't tell us about an Assyrian invasion. Don't tell us we're going to lose our testimony. We don't want to hear it. Everything's going fine. We are blessed. See, the wealthy looked and they said, man, we, we've got, we confiscated all these properties and we've gotten away with it. And we've killed people that got in our way and we didn't have any retribution come from God. We are blessed. God is blessing what we're doing, see. Sound familiar? The health and wealth gospel comes real close to that same concept. And so it's so important. And I say this especially to the internet generation. You younger people. Because I'm not part of the internet generation. I, I mean, that came up, I was almost 30 by the time the internet, well, the computer came in, the internet, I was in my 30s when the internet came in. But for those who grew up and that's all they had, they didn't have a choice. I had a choice. And I've made my choice with regard to the internet. But, but you younger ones, you didn't have a choice. I mean, you went to kindergarten and you had to learn to do it. And you went to first grade and everything was that. And now you go to college and you got to submit all your homework on the Internet. And, and that's just the way it is. And God bless you. <laughs> feel sorry for you. Because uh, as Chris and I were saying the other night, it's just a tool. But it is a tool with the hiss of the serpent in it more detailed than any tool we've ever seen on this planet. No generation has seen the kind of temptations that you're being exposed to. No generation could have. The technology didn't permit it. And so some, some young people, and we're hearing this in various things. We heard it some this summer at camp. that They're looking on the Internet. to They're listening to sermons from who knows who. And they're reading sermons from who knows who. And they're getting these ideas from who knows where. And then they're preaching them like they're truth because they're not going back and validating them with Scripture and they're not taking the time to research it because the Internet generation knows everything's got to be fast, right? I don't have time to look this up. I'm going to look it up on the Internet. If Google doesn't say it says this and if Facebook doesn't say it, then it must be true. And that's not true. That's not true in books in written material, and it's not true in web material on the computer either. You've got to go back and validate it. But see, the whole thing with the computer is, I mean, let's admit it. 
I mean, the neighborhood that has the fastest response on your computer, that's the wireline you want, right? Well, I'm paying for this service, man. I'm not going to wait 10 milliseconds for an answer on the... I want it to come right now. See, so everything's got to be fast, fast, fast. And that creates a mindset. It also creates a learning disability, too, that they're finding out in the schools. Attention deficit, because you can't control... The attention span is too short. You can't hold their attention. You can't have a, a Bible study without having a video on over your head because they want to be seeing a video. They're used to looking at a computer screen. But that video is distracting them from concentrating on the very words of Scripture they need to be looking at. See, that's why I don't want a distraction. I want your eyes to be on the Word of God. It isn't going to help you when you're sharing the gospel in your neighborhood to figure, well, I know where the verse is up here. You're going to know where the verse is in here if you've got your Bible with you in your hand. Or if you're using a palm thing with the Bible on it, that works too. But you've got to be able to find it there. And so it's that practical. And so it's very important that we recognize that the Word of God be handled rightly and taught according to the truth that it is. And that takes time. And that takes study. And that takes sweat. And sometimes it takes blood. But is Christ worth it? He sure is. God the Father worth it? Because of His love for us, He sure is. And so while they were exploiting, in verse 7, is the Spirit of the Lord restricted? Or is, are these His doings? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Ask the Lord. Well, then in contrast to that, over in chapter 3, verse 8, Micah says, But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to do what? To declare to Israel, to Jacob, his transgression and to Israel his sin. In other words, he's not telling them what they want to hear. <laughs> right? Nobody wants to hear that. Don't tell me my transgression and my sin. Tell me something good about myself. You know, like the popular... Preacher over in Houston, biggest church in the country, right? 40,000 members. And all it is is a series of anecdotal stories telling the congregation how good they are. And not the Word of God, and not the cross, and not the blood of Christ, and, and very little reference to the Lord Jesus. All of whom, all of that's the source of our power and our ability to withstand sin and transgression in our life, and you take that away, what do you got? you got your flesh. And you think your flesh is going to oppose sin? It will love to deceive you into thinking you can oppose sin in your own strength because it's deceitful, right? But we can't. It's only by the Spirit of the Lord. Micah knew that. Micah knew that when he was giving messages, he was speaking as a voice box of God, if you will. And, and that's something that anyone who preaches the Word of God and teaches it, including me, is what I seek. Brother, ask for that in prayer. That's why we pray for that. I'm wasting my time and yours. And our time is precious these days, right? 
We're wasting each other's time if we're not studying the Bible and preaching the Bible according to the Spirit of the Lord, right? And one of the characteristics, if you'll just hold your spot here for a second, over in the book of Isaiah chapter 8, there's a great statement that Isaiah makes. He's contemporary now with Micah, only Isaiah is with the upper class, if you will, over in Jerusalem. That's where the nobility was, right? That's where the government people were. And Isaiah happened to be over there, and that's where he was giving his messages. And in verse 16... He's in the, this is in the time frame of uh, the reign of King Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. So in the same time frame that Micah's talking about, the time of the Assyrian invasion. And he says, Bind up the testimonies, seal the law among whom? My disciples. My true followers. People who love me. Seal up the word with them. Let them protect my word. Let them preach my word. Let them be my representatives. And then that great statement, verse 17, 18, is quoted referring to our Lord Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2. Here am I and the children whom thou hast given me. But then in verse 19, And when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter. Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? In other words, God's people, rather than go to the Word of God, they thought the Word of God was boring. They thought it was not culturally relevant. Right? And so they said, man, we go to these wizards and these soothsayers and they're with it. You know, Saul made the same mistake, right? He turned totally away from the Word of God in the end of his life and went to a witch. And earlier in his life, he banned all witchcraft from the nation. He knew the law forbade witchcraft. In the end of his life, he's turned away from God because God is silent towards him. He can't get any direction from the Lord. So he goes to a witch. And beloved, there are a lot more people today who profess to be Christians who are consulting sources outside the Bible than you and I know about. If you intermingle with people in the workplace and start finding out what their source of truth is, if you really get down to where they are, you find out they say they're Christian and they drop certain words that sound Christian, but you find out that it isn't biblical Christianity that they're involved in. This is not going to decrease in the world we're living in. It's only going to increase. The technology will force it to increase just by itself. So to be forewarned is to be forearmed, right? And so what is the message that Isaiah says? This is the verse, verse 20. When it comes to finding out what the truth of God is, he says, to the law and to the testimony, if they don't speak according to this word, there's no truth in them. I love it. You see that in verse 20? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, the Bible, it is because there is no light in them. And if there's no light in them, then who is speaking through them? Darkness, the devil. You say, could he use somebody that professes to be a Christian? Yes, all the time. That's why he's called a deceiver. 
That's who he's going to use more than anybody. He's not going to bring somebody in here in a red suit with, with a tail and pitchfork and, and horns to try to deceive us. We'd, we'd say, oh, that looks like what we portray as a devil. No, he's going to come in here and say, well, I believe the same things you do. Let's go to lunch together and talk about what we believe. Now, we had a guy come in over in Lafayette, Louisiana a couple of years ago. Sat on the back row. Found out he was married, but his wife was going to a different church and his kids. But he said, uh, he said, well, what is it you believe about the rapture? And we told him. And he said, well, I believe in a mid-tribulation rapture. I'll sit and listen to what you preach if you let me preach what I believe. Hey, he's coming right off the street. First time. I thought, boy, he, this is bold. Now, the brethren there are well trained in the Scriptures. Praise the Lord. Because we study the Scriptures just like you do. And we consider them valuable. And so, what do we think? To the law, to the testimony. If he's not going to speak according to this word, there's no truth in him. We found out in talking to him and examining him that there was no truth in him in a lot of other areas too. He was a total fake. But they caught him. They didn't give him the pulpit. That's what he wanted. And, and you think somebody would do that. I mean, he was well-dressed, come in with you know tie, the whole bit. Fit the program, could sing the hymns. But it wasn't real. And so it's so important. And Micah proves that here in verses 8 through 12. I am full of the Spirit of the Lord. And he does, in verses 8 through 12, announce a destruction of Jerusalem. A destruction of Jerusalem that did not happen in his lifetime. Because... Jerusalem was spared in his lifetime, right? So therefore, the destruction he announced in verses 8 through 12 came in Jeremiah's lifetime, didn't it? And the elders of Jeremiah's day remembered Micah's, and they said, oh boy, we better listen to Jeremiah, but they got outnumbered. It was too late. They weren't saying to the law and to the testimony. They were saying, oh, we receive anybody who wants to. Come on in and preach whatever you want to. It was too late. Jerusalem was destroyed. But thankfully, there's a restoration oracle that immediately follows that in chapter 4. And what he begins with here in chapter 4 has not happened even in our day yet. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house... What mountain is that? Is that a mountain in the Himalayas? Mount Everest, maybe? And a mountain in the Rocky Mountains or the Appalachians or in the Alps? Anybody who's been reading Micah or, or any of the Old Testament knows what the mountain of the Lord's house is. Benjamin Mazar, one of the great uh, Hebrew archaeologists, over in Israel, the Mountain of the Lord is the name of his book on his massive book on archaeology, which I have at home. It's a great title. The Mountain of the Lord's House shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. This is why I say to people, I had some friends tell me over in Houston a few months ago about the Israel trip. They were interested. They, one of them said, you know, you've heard it said, well, I, I'm going to wait until I'm glorified. I'll, get, I'll be in Jerusalem then. You know, and that's, that sounds real cute. I said, oh, yeah, 
that's good, brother, but you're not going to see Israel like it is now when you see it then. If you wait until then, you will never see it like it is now ever again after that because it's going to be changed topographically. The valley is going to run east-west instead of north-south like it does now. The hill of Jerusalem is going to be elevated above. The whole topography, that whole area is going to be changed. The seas are probably going to be altered a little bit too. There's going to be a whole geographical shift in the continental plates over there at the time of the setting up of the Millennial Kingdom. The Bible talks about all that. So if you want to see the place where our Lord walked and you want to see the place where Micah preached, Lachish, and you want to see these very... You have to see them now because it's all going to get destroyed by the, during the tribulation period and certainly when the millennial kingdom is set up. Now that's not a plug for the Israel trip. But it is true. It is true. But it's going to happen in the latter days. That is a phrase that occurs continually through the Bible referring to an event that is going to come in the Hebrew calendar because it's generally referred to, initiated at least in the Old Testament. And all peoples shall flow to it. Beloved, that's never happened in the whole history of Jerusalem. In the time of Jerusalem, after the, the time that it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. and then destroyed again by Emperor Hadrian in 135 in the Bar Kokhba revolt, and then the Byzantine Empire took it over, and then the Muslims took it over, and then there was a, another group that came in there that from the east that took it over, and then the Ottoman Turks had it for 400 years, and then the British had it under the British mandate for 30 years, and then in 1948 Israel finally got it back. But it still isn't what he's referring to here. But it is helping to set it all up. Jerusalem has probably been plowed aside and rebuilt some 19 times over its history. But all peoples have never flowed to it. That will happen. Zechariah 14 says that at the Feast of Tabernacles every year, all the nations are going to have to have representatives that go to Jerusalem to celebrate that feast. And Zechariah says, if they don't go, the Lord says, fine, then it won't rain where you are. And of course, the whole world is going to be an agrarian economy again. Does that kind of boggle your mind a little bit? Yes, we can live without refineries and high-rises. Yes, that's all Nimrod's civilization. That's all going to be under judgment. It's all going to be destroyed. We're going to go back to an agrarian economy. I love that. I want to live off the land when I graduated from high school anyway. We were going to homestead out in Wyoming. We wrote to the state, and the state said, yeah, we still have property that we give, free property they give to hippies, like I mean young people like us, that go out there, and as long as you live off the land, and me and my buddy were going to do that, live off the land, build you a little hut, and, and, and grow your own food, and not be a burden to your society, they would give you the land. That's called the, home, the Homestead Act. And it's still, there are still properties that the U.S. government owns that they give away that way, I guess, in Montana, Wyoming, Oregon, that part of the country. Not anywhere along the Pacific Coast or anything. You know, it was, it would be well inland of that. And many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. 
Well, we'll have to stop there tonight. Sorry, but that'll give you some anticipation for what we're going to see on the Lord's Day. But it, it's a nice shift, isn't it? From those doom oracles <laughs> to be reminded of the restoration. But the fact that the restoration or oracle hasn't been fulfilled yet tells us that we're still in a difficult time. We're not in the kingdom yet, beloved. Sorry if you're a preterist. We're not in the kingdom yet. If this is the kingdom, I don't want it. But this ain't the kingdom. Pardon the slang. This ain't the kingdom. No, it... Uh, the Lord has big plans. See, God created man and woman in Genesis chapter 1 to reign on the earth, to exercise dominion over the earth. Are, are you exercising dominion on the earth right now? If you think you are, I want to take you down to the Miami Zoo because we'll take you in the lion cage over there and you should be able to tell the lion to stay off of you because you'd be exercising dominion over it. That's what Adam and Eve were able to do. The animals weren't trying to chew them up. Animals were like pets. And that's the way it should be. And I can't wait for that. Some of God's beautiful creatures, and I'd like to get up and just give them a hug or pat them. Or, but you don't do that now. No. You know, we don't encourage our children to do that either. So thank the Lord. There is a happy ending. In the meantime, we're in spiritual battle. We've got to wear our armor. We've got to be alert. We've got to be looking six ways, like driving on I-95 in South Florida. You've got to be looking first, two, three, four, five, six... Had a, had a guy on a motorcycle got run over just coming down here to the Andersons last night. Right? Five cars in front of me. He was driving down the stripe in the HOV lane. He, you know, you ought to think, you know, that is the blind side. Anybody that's driving the, on the left side of the car, that's your blind side to come up. Somebody must have changed lanes and I never saw him. I don't know if he survived or not. He was laying out there with the motorcycle next to him. moment like that everything in his life changed so it's something to be solemn and serious about isn't it so father we're thankful for the life that you've given us in Christ Jesus your son wow life to know life to even in this world that is hostile to you even in this physical body that has a flesh in it that's hostile to you that we can walk with you like Adam and Eve in the garden because of the Spirit of the Lord who is in us and we walk together we share in fellowship with one another and with the Lord's people and what a blessing it was that kind of a blessing on the Lord's Day morning we could feel your presence here you were here your people were here we were enjoying you together and that is a miracle that occurs every time we live for you in this world. Oh, Lord, we thank you for calling us out to live for you. We thank you for giving us your spirit. Thank you for giving us your word and your great faithful prophets of old like Micaiah and Micah. Pray, Lord, that you'll help us to receive your word into our souls and 
apply it to our lives, each one of us, that you might be glorified through us as we ask and give thanks and give us traveling mercies as we travel home tonight. We ask in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.